But let's open our Bibles now to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to work our way through the first six verses in part one of this short study titled, Never Give Up. Never Give Up. I'm sure you know as well as I do that those are some of the easiest words to say and hardest to live by. When we find ourselves in challenging times, and we feel like we're swimming across what feels like an ocean, and when we start to sink, we begin grasping for whatever we can find to keep us afloat. And what we reach for is of life-saving importance, right? When it comes to living the Christian life and faithfully striving to honor the Lord in, any, in every area, anyone can tell you and me to never give up. But not anyone can tell us the why and the how of true perseverance. And Paul, in few words here, gives us some of the pillars of the why and the how. He gives us several very specific God-honoring and empowering instructions. And I encourage you to grab a hold of these as we work our way through the text, especially if, you're, if you feel like giving up in certain areas of life right now. But also grab hold of them even if you're feeling strong. In a sense, don't wait until you've fallen out the boat to put your life jacket on. Don't wait until you've fallen out the plane to ask for a parachute. You get the idea. Now is the time to learn and to choose to never give up on God. So that big picture in mind, follow along as I read the first six verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, and that is referring back to chapter 3, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy... We do not lose heart. There is the theme of our study for at least the next couple weeks. We do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. These are the unchanging words of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look forward in these next few moments together to hearing truth from you, and particularly the truth of how not to lose heart. Lord, give us a deeper understanding of perseverance and the right things to persevere in. I pray, Lord, for those who are, who are indeed struggling deeply in their walk of faith right now. Lord, strengthen their mind, their heart, their soul. Give them truth that they can go from this place 
grasping hold of. Lord, for those who are in a season of joy, perhaps a season of comfort, ease, Lord, may we recognize that you call all of us to sacrificial service. And the time will come when we come to the end of our own rope. Lord, equip our minds and our hearts now to grab hold, not only when we come to the end of our rope, but even now. For truly, Lord, we need you desperately now. So thank you for the power of what you will do through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we dive into this study on never giving up, we, we do need to be very clear right at the onset here about the context that Paul is speaking from. This is not advice for how to get through your summer college class or our current big project or at work or that long-term endeavor to get out of debt, etc. At least not directly. This is not God's across-the-board, you-can-do-it stamp of approval and encouragement because sometimes we're not doing what we should be doing and we need to let it go. We need to give it up. So what is the context of this never-give-up message that Paul is giving? The context is Christianity. Christianity. Living out our faith and sharing our faith. That's simple. That is the context of these powerful words. When Paul says, we do not lose heart, he is very specifically talking about his work as an apostle, as a missionary, as a servant of the new covenant, as we saw last week. And the application for us is clearly that we are also ministers of the new covenant. We are here to live out our Christian life as a witness of the marvelous glory of God in salvation through Christ. The marvelous glory that has so changed our lives. And so with that context in mind, let's dive into verse 1. In this verse, it is critical that we understand sentence structure and its impact on meaning. If you've done any measure of study in the Pauline epistles, then you know that Paul loves to write in complex sentences. Very complex sentences. Sometimes his sentences are several verses long before we reach the period or the question mark, etc. He has lots of modifying phrases. And so, so much so that it's easy to lose track of the primary purpose and intent of the sentence in the first place. We have to read carefully. So in looking at verse 1, what is the primary independent clause? We do not lose heart. That is the focal point of verse 1. But Paul first states three things that are relevant to why he does not lose heart and neither should we. And they are, therefore, since we have this ministry and as we received mercy, Every one of those subordinate clauses is a truth home run. Let's consider each one. First we have, therefore. That is Paul saying, seeing that everything just stated in chapter 3 is true, we do not lose heart. If we want to understand how not to lose heart, how to never give up, 
we have to understand chapter 3. So what did we study last week? The ministry of the new covenant and the surpassing glory of it. The glory of the gospel. The unequaled value of our salvation in Jesus Christ. There's nothing like it in the world. And Paul is saying in verse 1 of chapter 4, it is because of these things in chapter 3 that we do not give up. Hands down, a Christian cannot find enduring strength apart from the epic truths in chapter 3. And that is the surpassing glory of God's free and loving salvation through Jesus Christ and our ministry of it. Keep those pillars of truth in mind as we move on to the next two phrases. Since we have this ministry, that is the ministry, the mission of the new covenant, the obligation to share the gospel, and as we received mercy, that would be our personal experience of the gospel, the new covenant. He's talking about our glorious salvation, which he described so well in chapter 3. What do we notice about these first two phrases? Paul just summarized all of chapter 3. The mission and the victory. These two principal points of Christian living give power to the believer. They are a driving motivation that fuels our perseverance in God and for God. We learn here that Christians who are exceptionally aware of the value and wonder of their undeserved, there's the mercy, their undeserved and free salvation are Christians who do not give up. And Christians who are exceptionally aware of their mission, their privileged responsibility and God-given duty to share the gospel are Christians who don't give up. Let's ponder these two points for just a minute. First, simply put, strong Christians vividly and regularly remember the mercy of God. The veil has been lifted by Christ as we study in chapter 3, and they see clearly the glory of the gospel that is theirs. They see the life-saving mercy that God poured into their life. This is very personal. These are Christians who see the chasmic difference between and the chasmic distance between hell and heaven. And when suffering and evil and temptation and exhaustion hit them head on, they remember that the mercy, the undeserved loving kindness of God is greater, greater than their sin, greater than their challenges. Understand the opposite of this. People give up when they believe their problems are bigger, more glorious in the negative sense, than the powerful and faithful mercy of God that is theirs. Can you think of a real-life problem, a present and excruciating pain that outweighs your personal salvation, that outweighs the fact that Jesus took your place on the cross and gave you and me a place in heaven with Him instead? Is there really a problem or a pain or any earthly loss that is greater than our salvation? Of 
course not. And Paul is driving this point home. We must never lose sight of our reality in Christ. This is a comparison issue. As we saw Paul using all throughout chapter 3, it's why in Romans 8, 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and he was going through a great deal of them, unlike you and I will likely ever see in our life. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And not only is the mercy of the gospel greater we find also that it is stronger. Romans 1.16, you know this verse well. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power. Think about that. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The phrase here, as we received mercy, is one of our greatest spiritual weapons. It's an atomic bomb against the devil and temptation and suffering for Christ. When Satan attempts to discourage and defeat and destroy with the guilt of the law in particular, or with the persecution of this world, or with the shame of both present or past sins, we look to the very real and effective mercy of God that is ours the saving grace of God, and it is greater. As the hymn writer said, greater than all our sin. Our salvation is surpassingly glorious. And we find next here at the start of chapter 4 that this blessing of mercy then calls for responsibility. Secondly, we're reminded in verse 1 that the ministry of the gospel belongs to every one of us who call ourselves Christians, disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I have been given and entrusted, he uses that word throughout the epistles, I've been entrusted with this ministry. And it's the mercy of God upon us in the first place that blesses us with this ministry, this mission of sharing God's glorious salvation. We see that salvation and responsibility come hand in hand. They are inseparable. We cannot have one without the other. Because we are the recipients of God's mercy, we automatically become participants in God's mercy mission. And Paul says in chapter 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is the mission that every one of us has been given. We're ambassadors, we're representatives, we are messengers of the mercy of God. And Paul is pointing out that there is real power in this realization. To lose sight of our calling, our mission, is to drain oneself of the strength to never give up. So with these two truths in mind, our God-given salvation and our God-given mission, we can confidently say, show us an on-fire persevering Christian and we will show you a believer who is anchored into the glory of their salvation and mission.
show us a weak or worldly or struggling Christian. And we'll show you a person who has to some degree lost sight of one or both of those fundamentals, faith fundamentals. This begs the question, am I daily overwhelmed at the magnificence of my salvation in Christ? Not just on Sunday mornings, but daily. Do we regularly and intentionally bring to mind the personal reality of the cross and the resurrection, the mercy and the grace, so that they will impact our thoughts and emotions, our attitudes and behaviors, especially when we feel like giving up. Strong, persevering Christians are extremely and consistently aware of the glory of their salvation. Second application question. Am I daily overwhelmed at the magnificence of my mission? Do we regularly and intentionally bring to mind the reality of our mission to share the gospel so that this vital, life-saving message will not only impact the recipient, but this awareness of our mission can impact our thoughts and emotions, our motives and attitudes and behaviors, especially when we feel like giving up. Strong, persevering Christians are extremely and consistently aware of the glory of their mission. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart, Paul said. Christian friend, if you are begging God for the strength to not lose heart, then deep, dive, dive deep into those two phrases. The summary of chapter 3. Meditate on them. Pray on them. Discuss them with Christian friends. I so savored the time I had earlier this week with a brother to just sit for hours and ponder the glory of our salvation and our mission right here in Gig Harbor and wherever God has us. Salvation and mission are like the fuel and the flame that makes the believer's engine run strong and long. So, what would cause a once faithful Christian to lose sight of or to forget or to minimize the glory of their salvation and calling? I'm glad you asked. Paul knew you would ask. The Holy Spirit knew we would ask from before the foundation of the world. Verse 2, Paul now walks through several specific actions that define the never-give-up believer. Things he was careful not to do and things he was careful to do. Verse 2, he says, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. This is where it gets personal. One of the sure ways to lose hope, to lose confidence and strength, and to feel like giving up in the faith is to fail to renounce the things hidden because of shame. On the contrary, one of the sure ways to gain hope and strength is to renounce the things hidden because of shame. 
There's so many key words there. Paul is talking about adamantly denying secret and private sins and impure motives, the things of the heart, and avoiding the shame that accompanies them. Paul says we renounce these things. The dictionary definition of renounce says this, to give up or put aside voluntarily, to give up by formal declaration, to disown, to repudiate. Here's the definition of repudiate. To reject as having no authority or binding force. How's that for a definition? We're talking about addictions, and particularly secret addictions. Hidden, impure motives that tend to control people, of which Paul was being accused. Greed, lying, pride, stealing, etc. Paul says we renounce those things. We reject them as having no authority or binding force in our life and ministry. What a statement. Friends, that's the mercy of God at work. That's the glory of God equipping us for our calling. Sinful addictions and tactics have no authority, no binding force, no power over us or our ministry, Paul said. Here's a straightforward application question for us. Question number three. Am I renouncing my secret sins? There's a world of difference between that kind of full force renouncement and something like, yeah, I know I need to work on my pride. Yeah, I know I need to work on my self-centeredness or, or maybe it's my private drinking problem. Maybe it's my anger problem. Maybe lust. Yeah, I know I need to work on my greed, my gambling, etc. Yeah, I know it's not good. I promise I'll try harder. I really will. I suspect every one of us has tried that self-help method. The incremental approach with our sins. When what is needed, what is required to find power is genuine and lasting declaration of repudiation. A grace-empowered disowning of the sin that does bring so much shame to the person and their ministry. Shame publicly weakens and discredits a person and their testimony. It's like an infection that gets worse and worse under the skin. It's an illness that breaks down the spiritual immune system. Secret sins. We know that on the contrary, innocence and godly transparency, we call this holiness. Paul called it simplicity. We know that these things are empowering. Repentance is strength. When we know that we are doing the right thing by the standard of God, we find fortitude. We do not lose heart when we reject and deal full force with secret sin, with private sin, with man-centered manipulation, with disgraceful and underhanded ways, all these things that Paul was being accused of. He says, we have renounced those things hidden because of shame. We don't go there. If you and I are going to be strong in the Lord, we must renounce the hidden sins that are crippling our Christianity. 
the things that are robbing us of our joy and our effectiveness in ministry, sharing Christ with others. If you're suffering from a private sin, and aren't we all to some degree, the things hidden because of shame, let me point you and myself to one sure biblical antidote. It is found in chapter 3, verse 16. Turn to the Lord. We focused on those words last Sunday and what it means to turn to the Lord. We just barely scratched the surface. The answer is never to try harder. If that was a solution, Christ never would have had to die on the cross. Think about that. We wouldn't need grace. We would just need to try harder. On the contrary, the power is never found in self. The power to conquer addiction lies not within you and me. That has been a theme all throughout these first four chapters. One must turn to the Lord. Nothing held back. Christ calls us to deny self and to pick up our cross and to follow Him. That's what it means to turn to the Lord, to trust in Him alone, to acknowledge Him in all our ways so that He can direct our paths. If you're struggling with an addiction, anything from a controlling pride to alcohol to porn, you name it, I humbly invite you to come to the church leadership so we can pray over you and with you and so we can dive into the Scriptures together and hold the light of truth up to the daily behaviors and patterns in our lives and the thoughts, particularly the lies that are enslaving us. I want to do this together so that we can turn to the Lord together and depend on Him to do what only He can do. Do we understand that conquering addictions requires a miracle? Sure, a person may get to the point in their life where they've, they've, they've beat the alcoholism. But mark my words, something else will take it pla its place if Christ is not there. If a miracle has not been done, it will come back. But many of you I know have experienced that miracle. You've experienced the glory of your salvation. And it wasn't just the day we got saved. It's what happens because of saving grace every day of our lives. There is real spiritual power to be found in repentance and sanctification. And if there's anything we can do to support you in that as a church family, we want to do that. I say this because in a sense, it's easy to preach on Sunday. But usually the victory is found on Monday. It's found in the day-to-day -day of our lives. We need to be there for each other, addressing the things that nobody wants to talk about, but that everybody wishes someone would help them with. I say this personally, too. We all stand in the need of prayer. We all stand in the need of Christian brotherhood. There is real spiritual power to be found in repentance and sanctification. So let's look at the next two major points Paul gives. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God. This alludes back not only to the disgraceful and underhanded approaches to Christianity that Paul just referenced, the secret sins, but also to what he addressed back at the, at the end of chapter 2. We do not peddle the Word of God. No conniving, deceitful, 
tricky, underhanded approach necessary in the way that we share Christ and live out our faith. Paul says, beware crafty Christians. He's not talking about ladies who like to paint and men who like to do woodwork. We're talking about this definition of crafty. Skillful in underhand or evil schemes. Cunning, deceitful, sly. Beware those crafty individuals who call themselves Christians. It's worth asking, am I a crafty Christian? Is there a, a fake sense to my Christianity? Am I really who I portray? Am I looking to accomplish what only the Holy Spirit can do through my own manipulation and coercion? These are things I'm wrestling with in my own heart. Lord, help me to know how to be a servant of the Spirit and not a replacement of the Spirit in the hearts of my children, my family, our church. Help us to know how to minister the power of God to each other without pretending to be the power. Paul says, beware crafty people. He adds, not adulterating the Word of God. This is a shockingly powerful word choice. The concept of adultery is having two relationships. A lawful and moral relationship at the same time as an unlawful and immoral one. This is a defrauding of the innocent person. A violation of the purity and commitment and covenant of the good relationship. Paul says we don't do that to the Word of God. We don't mix the Scriptures with humanistic philosophy and wisdom, worldly desire, connived methods, selfish gain, etc. We don't adulterate the Word of God. Adding any impure motives and adding any other forms of worldly logic, including self-centered, self-exalting self-help, to the divine and soul truth of Scripture is what Paul calls biblical adultery. Ponder that truth. This weakens the believer. On the contrary, application point number five, we find real power in the pure, authoritative, inspired, and inerrant, unchanging, all-sufficient Word of God. We believe only in the pure Word of God. My faith was so strengthened and inspired by one in our church family who just recently said in a letter to me, the only comfort I find in my deepest sorrow is in the comfort of reading God's Word. How's the saying go? He's all I have. He's all I need. It's not to say that there are no good books out there no good counselors, no helpful friends. There are, but it is to say that they will only be truly and lastingly empowering to the degree that they are founded in pure biblical truth. It's why we study the Word of God. Everything depends upon it. Paul says our manner of living 
and our approach to ministry is not in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, continue in verse 2, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul says instead of doing those sneaky, tricky things that are largely dependent on self, that's why we do them, Paul speaks truth instead, and the truth speaks for itself. Biblical truth, divine, unadulterated truth. And Paul is then able to commend himself to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He says, you can decide honestly for yourself in the sight of God if we are speaking and living truth. Isn't it interesting? And Paul recognizes that at some point, we just got to let people decide for themselves what they think of us and our ministry, the way we run our household, the way we live our life. Decide for yourself. Where's the power and the confidence found, though, to be able to do that? It's in the last phrase, in the sight of God. It's like Paul is saying, God sees me sincerely commending myself to your conscience. And God sees what you honestly think of me in the gospel. The bottom line is that God sees. God knows. I think that was one of the themes of our study in Exodus a while back. God knows. He is our ultimate accountability. And therefore, it is in Him that we trust. When a person renounces secret sins, they find strength in the fact that God knows. God is present. God is sufficient. When a person hides secret sin, they lose strength in the fact that God sees and God knows and God is present. Which side of God knows that we stand on makes a big difference in our strength as believers? Paul found strength in the omniscience of God because he was honest before the Lord. He found strength in the all-knowing nature of his heavenly Father. And so can we. Verse 3. We have to appreciate how Paul keeps bringing these these massive theological truths back to earthly reality. He keeps it relevant. Next, he points out that not everyone will accept our message. In verse 3, using the analogy of the veil being lifted by Christ from chapter 3, Paul is now going to talk about the satanic veil, the covering that blinds the minds of those who refuse to turn to Christ. That's a frightening thought, to be blindfolded by Satan. Look at verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Do you hear what Paul is saying here? He's talking about perishing with your face covered. It's one thing to be walking toward the edge of the cliff. It's another to be walking in that direction blindfolded, ignorant, unaware, carefree, perhaps even happy, not knowing your next step is going to kill you. If you saw someone walking toward the edge of a cliff, perhaps a toddler, totally blind to the fact that they were only steps from a thousand-foot death, what would your response be? 
Our hearts panic just at the thought, don't they? We would, every fiber in our being would rush to grab that child and pull them from the threshold of death. Is that not our spiritual mission? Verse 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. We learn a very intriguing spiritual truth in this text. At the heart of life's spiritual battle, the God of this world, Satan, does not want you and me to see the supreme glory of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Savior. Again, Paul was talking about the veil a few verses back in chapter 3. He's talking about it again. And who furthermore is this Christ, according to the end of verse 4? The image of God. The wording is so important here. Notice the difference. Unlike mankind... Jesus was not made in the image of God or in the likeness of God. He is the image of God. He is deity. He said, I and the Father are one. All the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Him in bodily form. Dan asked me to watch a video on the dangers of the prosperity gospel just a couple weeks back. John Westermark had that and loaned it to me. I'm sure, I'm sure he'd be happy to pass it around if you're interested. In that long documentary, they showed leaders, some of the most prolific leaders of the health and wealth gospel movement, unequivocally saying that Jesus was not God. They're not even ashamed to say it. They say he was just a man like you and me who had the Spirit of God mightily blessing him. And that's why you and I can be just as powerful as Jesus was when he was on earth. I have to believe that Satan is pleased with that horrific definition of Jesus. Because Satan does not want you and me to see the supreme glory of the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ alone. The image of God, the Son of God incarnate, He who took on the form of man that He might save mankind on the cross and through the resurrection. He who was the spotless Lamb of God and is the risen King of kings. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, Paul says. Friend, if you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, the Bible says that you are blind and perishing. That's a, that, that's, that's a spiritual truth that only you can decide how to handle. Every person has to answer that question on their own. Some won't believe it. Some will ignore it. Some will put it off as though they know they have tomorrow to live. Tell that to the people in Northern California who were at that food festival who were shot by that random stranger, how could they have possibly known they would not eat one more bite of food? The Bible warns us of this spiritual reality. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Look at the next phrase. So that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ 
who is the image of God. The light is the illumination. It's the revealing. It's the reality. It's the truth of the matter. In this case, we're talking about the light of the gospel. And what is the gospel? Gospel means good news. I just learned this, uh, this past week. The Greek word was often used of the runner, the messenger, who would race from the battlefield back to the city to inform the city of a, a, a battle that had been won. The message he carried was his gospel, his good news. There's, a, there's another gospel, and that is the good news of the glory of Christ, the surpassing glory of the new covenant, God's promise, his covenant to mankind through Jesus Christ. This is the glorious victory of Jesus, our Savior. We looked at this amazing glory last Sunday in the second half of chapter 3. The surpassing, life-giving, eternal, righteous, liberating glory of the gospel, the new covenant between God and man. I love the side-by-side list that uh, Paul showed me after the service. He had written down his notes. A list of, of not only the descriptions, but also the implications of the law and grace side by side. It is obvious that the glory and wonder of the gospel far supersedes the law. The law that pretty much just convicts and points out our need for righteousness. Only Jesus gives that righteousness. But going back to verse 4, what hope is there for the person who is blind and perishing? the person who cannot see God. Sometimes the news of tragedy is so disheartening or the danger is so severe that it's important to share the good news and the solution first. That's exactly what Paul did in chapter 3, verse 16. But when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Those are the words of hope and healing, and eternal life, and real power. The blindfold is stripped off when a person turns to the Lord. If you weren't with us and didn't hear our study on those life-giving words last week, I urge you to listen to the podcast or, or watch the live stream. You'll find the links on our website. We have hope and confidence and strength because we know that when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. There is a God of this world, but there is a greater God of heaven, the God of eternity, the God of all power. No one truly seeking God has to fear spiritual blindness or spiritual death. Because when they turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. I once was blind, but now I see. The hymn writer had experienced it. I see so many of you nodding your heads. You have experienced it. In his defense of the gospel and his calling, his mission, Paul goes on in verse 5 to say, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. The lesson is very simple here. Beware preachers who preach themselves. Their thoughts, their opinions, their methods, their achievements, their authority. 
Paul says here, test me and see that I do not preach myself. One of the lessons here is to protect the pulpit from the preacher. Guard the truth. As long as the minister preaches only Christ and Christ crucified, you have protected the pulpit as well as yourselves and the preacher. Paul just stated what he doesn't preach, but he also states what he does preach. Christ Jesus as Lord. Christ, the Messiah. Jesus, the Savior. Lord, the King. He's the one the prophets foretold. He's the one we desperately need. He's the one we now worship and serve forevermore. That's who Paul preaches. Jesus is the gospel. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And as Jesus said in John 14, 6, no man comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the gospel. He and what he has done is the good news. Paul went on further to properly define himself and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. How interesting that Paul didn't just preach Christ Jesus as Lord. In a sense, he also preached himself as their bondservant for Jesus' sake. There is big-time wisdom there for pastors, for Sunday school teachers, for Bible study leaders, for anyone who is commissioned with the ministry and the mission of the New Covenant. And of course, that would be every single Christian. Pastor Mark and I, and any other teacher in the church, we are your lifelong bondservants for Jesus' sake. Contrary to human wisdom, when the pastors see themselves as genuine servants and when the congregation sees them that way as well, that is an empowering truth. God spare us the day when you start to view Pastor Mark or me or anyone else as something greater than a bondservant. We're not heroes. You know there is only one hero. We're not saviors. There is only one savior. We're not wisdom. We're just messengers. Understand it. When you come to someone for counsel in the church, they have nothing of themselves to offer. There is no answer they can make up for you. We are just messengers. All we can do is point you to truth. And we need it too. Many of us have tragically seen pastors rise to pedestal status. And the higher they rise, it seems the harder they fall. We just saw it again the last couple weeks in Josh Harris, which many of you know, the senior pastor of the megachurch that founded Sovereign Grace Ministries, the author of I Kissed Dating Goodbye that sold nearly a million copies some 20 years ago. In recent years, Josh largely renounced the book that he wrote, and I believe some of it rightly so. You know, there's a little bit of man, man-centered stuff there. But two weeks ago, three weeks ago, he also renounced his marriage. And last week, he renounced his faith. How in the world does a conservative, popular, senior pastor of a well-known, biblically-based megachurch say, I am not a Christian, quote-unquote? I don't have many answers, but I do know that we would do well to recognize the bondservant wisdom in verse 5. Pedestal status is a spiritual cliff. It's a spiritual cancer 
a spiritual fibromyalgia at best. It drains a man of strength because God never intended him to stand in that place. It also drains a church family of their strength because God never intended their hope or power or confidence or stability to be found in a pastor or an elder or any church leader or any million copy selling book, etc. The only bestseller we find our power in is in the scripture and in the person of Jesus Christ as Lord. What has Paul been saying all throughout this book? Chapter 3, verse 5. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God who leads us in triumph in Christ. No pastor, no board will ever lead you in triumph. God leads us in triumph in Christ. And Paul also learned that God allows trials so that, chapter 1, verse 9, we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. We preach ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. God helped that sermon to come often from this pulpit and from this church family as a whole. There is power in God. Verse 6, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Look at the confidence factor here. The authority factor. The God who created this universe the God who spoke light into existence is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. There's where we find confidence. The power to never give up. The desire to press on. That is the gospel and its author right there in that verse. And that is why we have such a hope. The light has shined and the veil has been lifted. Our hearts, by the grace of God alone through faith, see the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So many people refuse to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. They insist that he was just a prophet. Just a noble and extraordinary teacher, just a man. There is no salvation and no power to be found in that heresy. On the contrary, we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Unlike the glory that faded from Moses' face, as we studied just a week or two ago, this glory remains it imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. It gives liberty. It is the glory of God in the face of Christ in us, through us. That's, that's the miracle of God doing what only God can do in and through us. 
That is the message we proclaim. I know this has been kind of a fire hydrant, a text to ponder in one sitting. We could spend hours longer here, days, weeks. We'll spend all eternity, I'm sure. But sometimes it takes a fire hydrant of truth to put out the flames of discouragement and despair and doubt. The desire to give up. And the Holy Spirit, through Paul, unleashed truth in these six verses. I trust that our hearts have been strengthened in the Word of God today so that we too can say, we do not lose heart. Lord willing, we'll look at the rest of the chapter next week. Paul continues to minister truth on how to find strength where strength can only be found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are such a good God, beyond description, surpassing in glory in every good sense our minds can even begin to think of. The thought that you not only save us, but you continue to minister the power of God to us through the challenges and the joys of this life. We need you when things are hard, and boy, do we need you when things are quote-unquote good. Satan is doing everything he can to distract us and the lost from the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To lose sight of the strength that we find in you, particularly in the glory of your salvation and the glory of your mission that you have so lovingly and freely lavished upon us. Lord, help us more tomorrow than yesterday to be overwhelmed at the magnificence of our salvation. That word we use so freely, so casually, it rolls off our lips sometimes without even thought or meaning. Lord, add weight to the word salvation. Help us to be overwhelmed with the surpassing glory of what you have done and are doing and will do because of our salvation in Christ Jesus. But Lord, help us not to be so self-centered that we forget that 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 salvation comes with a mission, an inseparable mission. And that when we devote ourselves more and more to the daily, not just Sunday, not just from the pulpit, not just from the Sunday school class, but the Monday through Saturday as well, ministry of the gospel in the workplace and to our families, to those who share like hobbies, sports, whatever it might be, let us see everything as a mission field. For we understand in faith that when we are overwhelmed with the magnificence of our mission, then we find the power to not lose heart. Lord, may we look at one another and see perseverance. May the lost look at this church family and see strength that they see nowhere else outside of Christ, outside of the body of Christ. We're so thankful that you are the God of all strength, and it is you who are in us who give us the power to do what is right, to know what is right, to believe what is right, to keep our faith in you, and indeed it is you who keeps our faith in Christ. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.